Welcome to the Health Science Podcast. I'm Adam Chris. I'm Anna Nguyen. Cool. And so, Anna, like I was, like I was saying, um, uh, my my good friend and mentor, Lance Deal, um, we interviewed, I, I interviewed a couple of days ago, and so that, that's going to be coming up after I record. And so we were thinking mentors would be a, a cool topic for today. Um, yeah. we, compared, we compared injuries, and, and now I guess we can compare mentors or mentorship sure yeah or we can just like talk about you know influential people in our lives um because yeah mentorship is important especially like in careers and um you know i guess athletic careers as well so it's like yeah i think it'd be pretty cool to talk about mentors yeah yeah and that's kind of i never thought of a mentor as being influential you know the my definition my definition of mentor doesn't doesn't involve influence at all that's kind of well, yeah, I don't know. What, how how would you define it? What when you when you hear the word mentor, what what do you think about? Like, I I think of someone that offers you guidance and someone who is you know important to you, obviously, and like someone you look up to. So I think that's where that kind of influence comes from. Because I mean, like, if you were to ask for advice or something from someone who doesn't you know have a significant impact in your life then like perhaps you wouldn't find them as influential so yeah or is it because because mentors are influential and helping they they become important people like i you know i always kind of like what what's i was going to think of like what's the difference between a mentor and a teacher and i think there is a big difference what what is the big difference? Well, I think a teacher you could you um, a teacher's responsible for like um, um, uh, introducing and and instructing you and in learning new material, right? And a mentor, I think, has this this added layer of they care about you as a person going through that process. Adam, do you not care about your students going through that process at school? So I would like to think that I do, you know, mm-hmm. and I would like to think that like, yeah, of course I care about my students, but you know, I have 160 students right now mm-hmm. and I'm still struggling to learn their names and they're wearing face masks. And I, you know, I don't even know what people look like from, from the nose down. And mm-hmm. so I think it's hard to be a mentor to 160 students. I think I could be, I think you could be a great teacher and not necessarily, not necessarily be a mentor. Um, okay. And, and I, at least that's my, cause, cause I consider, so the coach that Lance Deal and I both had, and we overlapped a little bit. We were, we were training partners for a little bit. And then he, he got to be my, my coach, my senior year at, at college. So that coach named was uh, Stuart Toger, and he was definitely a mentor to me. Um, and so he was, he was my coach in hammer throwing and he definitely, you know, so he was a very good coach and instructed me very well, 
Um, but there was a point, and he started out just being a coach, and there was a point where that changed, where I would start asking him about other issues. I, I would come to him for advice about other stuff, like relationships mm -hmm. or money or um, apartments, rent, you know, renting an apartment or that sort of, there was mm -hmm. other stuff that came into the conversation um, where it wasn't just about hammer throwing or wasn't just about learning the material. It was about, it was, it was trusting him to give me advice of how to navigate that time in my life at, as a person. Um, does that make any sense? I no, I, I mean, it does, it does. And I just, I guess I was just thinking about it because, um, well, I assuming your, your definition of a mentor is someone on a personal level, essentially. Yeah, and there's gotta be this added thing where, where the person is supporting you on a, a shared journey, I think. You know, they, they have to recognize that you're on this, this weird journey. I think you only find mentors by like starting to do your thing, like whatever that thing is. And so if, it, if it's health sciences and, or, or going into healthcare, you're gonna come across people that have, have walked the same path or a similar path and can help guide you through it and, and kind of give you tips and tricks along the way, you know, to, to avoid some of the issues that, that are inevitably gonna come up. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I think that's a distinction between a teacher and a mentor is a teacher will, or a teacher will say, how are you doing in class? And, or, or how's the class going for you? And a mentor would be something like, how are you doing as you're going through this class? I don't know. That, that's a very subtle distinction, but. Is, is a mentorship just like a personal consultant? I, yeah. Or a consultant that knows you personally? Is that? It's gotta be more than teaching because it has to be adapted to situations, right? Because when I teach, I teach off of a curriculum. It's, it, it's a script and I test to see if, um, you know, people learned it or, or didn't. Um, mentorship is when you're like, I, I feel like guiding someone through, yes, there's a curriculum. Um, yeah, you should have gotten it. Um, oh, but you're going through other stuff right now. Um, I can help you navigate through that other stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And having the skills and ability and, and time to be able to navigate students to that problem or, or that, that experience that they're having. I think it's it's guiding an individual person through a unique situation or be the, the ability to do that. That's that's a good way to put it, yeah. And so, because there, there's gotta be something different because I teach my classes pretty much the same way every year. And that can't be mentorship, right? Like- No, we, I don't think, I don't think you, we can, we can say that teaching is mentorship or mentorship is teaching. Well, actually I think they're right. It's like a two thing all along, anyway. Mentorship is probably teaching, but but teaching isn't necessarily a mentor, just like coaching isn't necessarily a mentorship. I, I, I had plenty of coaches or I saw plenty of coaches in college that looked at athletes like numbers, like points at, at the, at the mm -hmm. championship meet. And, you know, I had a coach that very proudly would say like, what have you done for me lately? You know, meaning like how many points did you score the last meet? Mm -hmm. And he just, he's very honest that he just gives the most attention to people that are scoring the most points. And mm -hmm. that's not mentorship. He's putting his needs above the needs of the athletes. 
you know, it's, he's, he's, he was a good coach. He put athletes through a system that, that would be successful, but it, it, I don't think it was mentorship. Yeah. So I, I mean, I only asked because like just prior to this, um, to our episode recording, I was reading an article about um, UO and like the track team and how um, there were six female athletes on the track team that um, left the team because of um, the way that the, I guess the team is structured and how they get um, like these body fat percentage readings and things like that and kind of how that was detrimental to their like mental health so yeah i was just asking so it's just a side note that's a a different topic you know so so so, in exercise physiology we did body fat percentages and Mm um we we talked a lot about what this information is for what it's used for what what's our scope of practice pretending we're going to be personal trainers or whatever um Mm -hmm. what's our scope of practice with with taking these body fat measurements and so one of the one of my students brought up that they heard U of O does you know uh, was abusive to the athletes or something like that. Yeah, um, De- Dexa, so I think it's called Dexa. Dexa reading. Oh, they would do Dexa readings. I guess that makes sense. That's pretty fancy. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I have not. I have no knowledge of that current situation. I do know. So my wife was on the track team. We we met on the U of O track team. And both my sisters were on the U of O track team. And so I, I can't speak with some experience that the U of O track team, usually around this time of year, you know, around October or November, would do body fat testing for the women's athletes. And they would tell the, the women athletes the numbers. Mm-hmm. And which is, I never understood because the female athletes just, they would kind of go kind of crazy for a couple of weeks. Um, because it would so if you take a, a pretty dedicated athlete and you tell them what their body fat percentage is, let's say you say they have 19% body fat, which is a healthy range for, for women, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's a, I think it's 14 to 20%. I don't even want to say it's higher than that. I, I think it's um, it 22 or something. I don't know. On, on, the, on the article, it said 14 to 20 Okay. Yeah. But so, so, um, <laughs> If you tell an athlete they got 19%, you tell them they have 15%. And they, you know, highly competitive athletes are going to be like, oh, so if I can drop two more pounds, I'm going to be that much faster. Or I'm going to be, I'm going to get a competitive edge if I could just get a little less body fat. And I think that's interesting that you say it that way, because I think it's opposite. I think it's more like athletes don't have an issue with it. And then it's the coaching staff that's like, you need to drop like another 2% in order to be faster could i mean could be could be and and i don't think i never heard any of the coaches when i was at u of o say that well that's great but i mean i i, I think it doesn't mean that, ex- that experience doesn't exist because i mean like this article is out saying like that is what they experience of like you know being told that they need to lose a few more percentages or else they can't travel to like out-of-state meets or they can't you know or they'll they'll look bad or whatever that they you know this is like for the best of the team or for the best for them so yeah I, I mean it's like an athlete that that left said that they've never had an issue with their relationship with food and like you know how they eat but once that 
you know, the, the DEXA readings came out and then the conversations of like, you needing to lose more like percentage, I mean, more body fat percentage, like it, it just got really bad. So. Yeah. And I think, and so I, you know, I know other college programs that I mean, had chronically had, um, female athletes, like the female athlete triad, where they, they become mm-hmm. amenorrheic, stop, stop their menstrual cycle, and they start mm-hmm. losing bone mineral density. And there was, there was uh, women that, that basically ended their distance running careers because they basically had osteoporosis. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of the risk of, that, that's a risk of, of doing that, uh, of trying to cut back on body fat percentage. Just it, there's there's a real big risk to the athletes, but the athletes that survive that system are probably going to be pretty fast. You know, if it, you know, it, not because it's necessarily a good policy or or beneficial to everybody or that sort of stuff, but the athletes that survive that are probably pretty fast. And so, yeah, I mean, they are, I guess, I guess it's just a, it's now that concern of like, is, is, you know, being fast worth, worth that, like, person, like the, I guess the personal, um, like problems that comes with it, you know, because that, that's pretty detrimental to a person, especially female athletes, right? Because you already have other, like, societal factors that play into that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, it's it's definitely an interesting conversation we should definitely have in a probably another episode of just talking about that because like yeah it's just like you know is bees fast they're like not they're, they're already fast like keep in mind like these are like top tier athletes already because like you're at uo right um everybody knows it's one of the best um track and field programs in the state I mean, in the country um so to already be a fast athlete right you're being recruited for this team to then be told you need to be faster by essentially putting your health in jeopardy, you know, because like all these athletes are already in the healthy body weight percentages ranges. And then now to like be encouraged to lose more for in this case for points, right. To be able to win a championship or to be able to win a state meet or whatever the case is. It's like, I think that's, that's now centering that conversation. So. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, potentially detrimental athletes. Some athletes could probably tolerate it fine. Others, it's going to, they're going to be devastated. You know, they, they can't, they can't handle that system. And so that is the opposite of mentorship, <laughs> right? Like you do not care about the person that's going to score you points. You just care about the points that are going to be scored by a person on the team, mm-hmm. right? Like that, to me, that's the opposite of mentorship. And you're just putting people through a system and hoping to get a result. And um, I think there's some examples of educational systems that do the same thing, that they just put students through a process and they know they're going to get top, top outcomes and they might hurt a lot of, a lot of people along the way. Um, I don't, th- I think Forest Grove is pretty good about not doing that, but, um, anyway, I, it, but it's kind of this interesting thing because you can have a lot of success with a bad system as long as you have enough people. As long as you have enough people coming in and you don't care about the people who succeed or get hurt, you know, if you don't care about those individuals, you, you mm-hmm. can have a lot of success in a program. And I wonder if that's, sort of, I wonder if we need more mentorship 
in the world. I think there's a lot of potential and a lot of people that needs to be mentored. You know, like we can mentor a lot of potential for a lot of people and keep people from getting hurt either mentally or physically or socially or spiritually. And that's interesting. Yeah. Because I, I, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. If, If people are getting hurt by going through a process, then that means there's potential there. If you mentor those people, then you can develop them into something really great. It may not be what you wanted. And it may not be, you know, what, what you, you might not be able to guess what greatness is going to come out of those people, but there's potential there. I don't know when listening, listening to you speak and say that I I thought rather than putting that focus on the individual, trying to mentor that individual, I thought of it is, I thought of it um, as a way of looking more externally and seeing what is you know causing like these struggles and things like that and rather than mentoring that person through obstacles it was more like let's fix a system to not have obstacles but yes i i think i think that wow that's that's really cool that's talking and so it's a little bit what aaron and i talked about in in the episode before with Mm -hmm. the difference between injury prevention and performance and I think it's a it's a very limited distinction between are you trying to avoid problems and or and avoid obstacles? Are you putting in the work to avoid obstacles, or are you putting in the work to repair the damage caused by obstacles? You know, mm-hmm. or or mm-hmm. improve. So, or are are you trying to put in the work to improve performance um, to get through the obstacles? I, yeah, I th- I think that's what real coaching and real mentorship is. Um. And so like my, my coach in, in college, he thought it was inhumane to, to push athletes to the limit. And so his whole thing was about injury prevention. I, w- I never missed a day of practice or a meet because of an injury. And, nice. and yeah, and injuries, I think for him included um, your personal life, your finances, your, mm-hmm. you know, you were gonna come out of the university experience being a better person than when he started. Like that, that was really important for him. That's a good philosophy, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We've been talking for a while. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. Should we should we stop it here? Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Catch you guys on the next episode. All right, Anna. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Hi, my name is Sam Girl, and you can stream my new song "Selfish" on all of your favorite platforms. <laughs> Let's just start. Um, Let's start. Yeah, Lance Deal, uh, welcome to the uh, Health Science Podcast. Thank you. Um, and it's real. We, yeah, we we've tried this a few different times, and I don't think it ever was ever real. Um, <laughs> I just I just have random recordings just on my uh, on my computer. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for doing this. Do you do you want to introduce yourself and and say a little bit about your resume and why you're such a cool guest? Sure. Well, I don't know why I'm cool other than, you know, I, I hang around with cool people. But um, uh, so to, to put a little bit of modesty aside, I guess the, 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 the elephant in the room is that I'm a four-time Olympian and a silver medalist in the hammer throw. Um, I threw for a long, long time. Uh, I was a shot and discus thrower in college. 
I was an all-rounder in high school, football, wrestling, track, and baseball for a while. Um, it left, uh, I was an All-American in college in the discus and um, left Montana State. After I graduated, left Bozeman um, to come to Eugene to train with a guy named Stuart Toger, who was the national hammer coach and kind of just stayed here after 1985 and trained until 2002. Um, so I suppose you could say I was a professional athlete for quite a few years um, and uh, was uh, uh, upon retirement from throwing, I became a coach. I coached the uh, U of O throwers including uh, the, the, the one and only and great Adam Kriz, who you've probably heard of, and um, uh, did that for about eight years. And uh, then for about seven years, I was the caretaker uh, in, uh, of, of sort of the facilities manager for Hayward Field, which is a track at U of O. And, um, all that while after I'd graduate, after I retired from throwing, um, I went to massage school and became a massage therapist in 2003. And at the same time I did that, I sort of um, started a business in uh, building, uh, inventing and building track equipment that's, that's sort of titrated down to building hammer cages and discus cages and selling them and, and taking them and putting them up all over the country. So, yeah. So, so elite athlete, coach, massage therapist, inventor, and fabricator, Lance Steele. An event planner and, and executor. Event planner and executor, that's right. That's right. It's okay. Not a bad resume, pretty, pretty eclectic. Um, so gosh where where do we go from there um and uh, you you touched on this but we we go back we go back a ways um and so i we i had a brief overlap with being uh, a training partner with you i think my very first year throwing hammer right at u of o first and then had the good fortune of having you be my coach my last year at u of o yeah. um and so and then we've 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 been friends ever since. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I th I think you're a really interesting person to talk to because you're you're so knowledgeable about so many things, with like experience and a background that no one else has. Mm -hmm. um, let's can 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 we start now and work backwards? Sure. Does that work? Um, I'm going to skip the fabricating hammer cages, although. I want to touch at that at the end, okay? Because I think it opens up some possibilities for some Forest Grove students. Um, yeah, and so I want to talk to you about about your massage therapy um, and 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 what you do there, because a lot of my students are going to be interested in massage therapy. Um, what's it like? <laughs> Great question. I'm a really good interviewer. I'm still working on. <laughs> Um, you know, I've read that, that massage therapy is one of the best part-time jobs uh, that you can have, and I, and I totally agree with that. Um, the thing about massage therapy is it can kind of go in a whole bunch of different directions. 
um, it's it's not you don't have to have you know a whole bunch of a whole bunch of training you need I think the, when I when I went to school I did um, basically mornings uh, you know eight to twelve for twelve months and then you have to get about five hundred hours of um, uh, just experience, um, including the classes. And then you can become a massage therapist. And then once you get that, once you get your license and become an LMT, licensed massage therapist, um, that's when you start branching out and you can kind of do almost anything you want within the scope of practice. And what that means is, you know, there's certain regulations um, around healthcare um, certain, certain licensures allow you to do certain things. Um, massage therapists, um, are not, they can't really use machines. They can't use ultra stim and, or muscle stim, ultrasound, frequency specific microcurrent, lasers, any of that stuff are really not supposed to, to delve into that. With that said, um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a little bit of overlap, like if you're a, a chiropractor's assistant um, or, or something like that, where you can do some of that stuff that's not really that invasive. But for me, I just really like the soft tissue work. And what that means is, you know, we're addressing, uh, or I, I feel like I address as a massage therapist, um, muscles, tendons, ligaments, that sort of stuff. A little bit of nerve mobilization sometimes, um, some stretching, some in, in that um, uh, uh, stretching, postural work, that sort of stuff. Anything where you can just kind of to have, have somebody on your table, in your massage room, wherever, a chair massage, and we'll get to some of that later, but you can you can put your hands on them, and without doing the other thing that you can't do is high velocity thrusting like a chiropractor. But you can do some stuff. There's a whole bunch of different stuff that you can you can address some of those things with within the scope of practice of, of massage therapy. So overview you can you can uh, I, I work one day a week at a, a massage center and I see everybody from uh, you know uh, young people that come in um, that are uh, skateboarders and soccer players and and they're just kind of they're, they're, they're recreational athletes all the way to 75 year olds that just want to, to continue to try to be young. Um, I go to a massage therapist that's a little bit more uh, clinical with his, with his work. And he does some stuff where he's actually addressing imbalances in the structure, um, looking at, uh, uh, for an example, um, the alignment of, of hips Sometimes one side of your, your, your pelvis kind of gets a little bit crooked in relation to the other side. And there's things that we can do um, within our scope of practice 
you know, that aren't like a chiropractic adjustment and aren't uh, uh, invasive and we can help people get a little bit better aligned. Um, would, would, what causes like these, the, the hips, being like, human. like turning the same direction uh, 200 times a day for like 20 <laughs> years? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, um, hold, holding on to a heavy object. Uh, heavy yeah. objects. Um, yeah, kind of that. Um, everybody has <laughs> has habitual movement patterns, right? And and one of the big things these days is your your computers, your iPhones. Everybody's looking down. Everybody's looking down at their belly button all day long, and and that's causing a real problem. And you know everybody's either driving or working on a computer or working on their phone, and it's pulling their chest in, and it's tightening up their chest and ch and changing, uh, sort of chronically changing posture. So I do a lot of work opening people's chests up and trying to get them to stand up again. I, I think we're you know that 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 picture where we come out of the ocean and we're bent over and we gradually get taller. And I think we're going the other way. We're gradually. <laughs> Uh, uh, leaning forward again, and, and we're pretty soon we're going to be on all fours. Um, I, I, so that's that's really interesting. So the the episode before this, I mean, I know you listen. You're a huge fan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, the episode before this, we talked to the athletic trainer at the school, and uh, I've talked to the the track uh, cross country and track coach, and we're seeing or they're seeing some interesting injuries and lack of performance development in the athletes and we're wondering if it's because of coming off of 18 months of covid and that exact thing of what you're saying our students just were they glued to computers and screens for six hours a day yeah and just and just in this like hunched over position because and correct me if i'm wrong if you have tight musculature around your chest that's caving in your chest you can't take a full breath right? or, yeah yeah um, yeah, so there's, so, so massage therapists can address that. They can address, you know, you, we talked about, uh, pelvic imbalances. We can just do relaxation massage, which everybody needs. Everybody's so high strung and I'm not, it's well, yeah, but you're, <laughs> we're all individuals. Wait a minute. I'm not. Um, so so there's there's the, there's the range from you know dark room candles essential oils you know nice soft long easy massage stuff just relaxation stuff soft music all the way to like the guy that works on me that you know we're we're almost like in a training room situation um two one of the things that i've done in the past is is i spent a lot of time um, working on uh, track and field athletes at the U of O. And you are in the training room side by side with the athletic trainers. You don't do what they do. You don't tape. You don't use the, the ultrasound and the muscle stim and that sort of stuff. But that's okay because there's so much stuff that you can do. You can increase blood flow. You can link. My whole deal when I'm working is, is uh, lengthen, soften and lengthen. Because as a body, as a human being, the only thing you can really do is tighten up, right? Okay. All your muscles are built to shorten. And, and that's the active thing to do. And so if you're, if, you know, you think about 
you know, you watch somebody uh, uh, have some sort of trauma, you know, you just get shoved over in line or something and it hurts and they tighten up. Well, that's what we do. Our bodies, if we get a little trauma, the stuff around that trauma tightens up. So a lot of what I think about doing is just trying to let that stuff relax. And there's, there's all sorts of techniques that you can learn that help that. And um, even just being in, in, that, in that atmosphere um, relaxes people. So, so I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is that there's just such a range of possibilities for massage therapy. So you, you don't feel like you wanna be, uh, you know, what I call spreading lotion, just fluff and buff sort of stuff. You know, go get your nails done, go get a little facial and then get a little rub. That's really valuable. I don't like to do that, um, but that's okay because there's a whole bunch of people that do. I don't necessarily like the other end of the spectrum either where I'm just working on mechanics. It's like, oh, you're, 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 the spinous process of your L5 is rotated to the right. We have to fix that. Okay, great. If, if, if you're the kind of person that likes that mechanics, well, maybe massage therapy is where you can go, but maybe you want to think about being a, a, a PT or a, P, a physical therapist or a physical therapy assistant um, and move into a more uh, a, a profession that's more involved in that sort of stuff. Um, but massage therapy, as far as it goes, um, it's just a really, it, it's just a really great thing to do. And especially if you have other things, um, other things that, that interest you or other, other things that you do to make some, to make a living. Generally massage therapists at a, at a, at a, um, at a, at a spa make somewhere around 25 to $40 an hour plus tips. If you're, if you're good and you have a, or if you, <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm good, but I, 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 my, my reputation precedes me in other ways. And so I've been able to establish a fairly good private clientele and I charge $80 an hour. That's pretty good. How, how much in how much schooling does it take to achieve your, your massage therapy license? I was done. I did a year of half days um, in class. And then, um, and then about, uh, I don't know, about three months of study. And uh, well, I was really lucky because I, I had a, a prescribed, I went to Cascade School of Massage and they had a prescribed curriculum. Boom, you, you went in, you paid your tuition. They made sure that you had what you needed as far as <clears throat> requirements, 500 hours of, of both uh, classroom and clinical work. And it may have changed, it may have gone up. It's different from state to state. Um, and then you study for your boards, you go, they have, they have board testing um, at certain times of the year. You go in, they run you through, okay, you know, tell me the, the, the action insertion, origin and action of the, the sternocleidomastoid. That's easy, it's in the name. Exactly. Right, yeah. Um, 
and they do that a couple of times and they watch you make a, a, a make up a massage table and they watch you do a little bit of you know uh, uh, okay, just show me how you work on the on the uh, quadratus lumborum, blah blah blah. They're watching you. They're marking it off. If you do something like you know, uh, hold the pillow in your mouth while you're putting the pillowcase on, you might fail. No, you got <laughs> you got to do it some way that's more sanitary than that. You know, you can't. And, and it's it, so you just you take all the things you've learned. And you have to pass a written test, so you got to know your anatomy and your physiology, and your pathology, and and that sort of stuff, um, and uh, uh, contraindications, that sort of stuff. Um, and then you pass your test, and then you're an LMT. That's pretty cool. So, so within within a year and a half, two years, one year, it sounds like you you can be a certified massage therapist. Yeah, especially if you get into a into a program. If you go to a junior college, and you set up your own um, curriculum, sometimes it takes two years to get through all the anatomy, physiology, all that sort of stuff. That makes sense. Just yeah. The timing of the classes. Yeah, because I think Lane Lane Community College do they still have a program. Yeah, and then do you, do you know of another program going on in the state? I think there's one in Bend, in the okay. junior college there. I think there might be, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna say it out loud because it might be a lie. Yeah, but, but, but theoretically you can go to school anywhere and sit for the board certification for Oregon. Is that? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, neither do I. Okay, well, good. Well, so, I mean, if someone, I, I, the reason why I'm asking it is, is if you're interested in physical therapy, well, that takes a, almost a PhD now anymore yeah to, to become a physical therapist but if you can get a nice part-time job being a massage therapist while you're going through pt school your undergraduate and then pt school that's that'd be a pretty good gig yeah yeah, yeah. i don't know mm -hmm. um that wasn't a question that was just an observation of mine yeah, um, yeah still working on the interview thing and the questions because you can, because you can, well, you answered it, but you, you answered your own question better than I could have. So that's good. Um, there we go. uh, yeah. And, and yeah, then there's, there's, there's parts and pieces that, that, you know, you kind of have to figure out. And, and if you go to a good school, um, they bring people in and talk to you about marketing yourself and and sort of targeting your clientele what what kind of massage do you want to do who do you want to massage um and and that'll change sometimes um you, you think you maybe you want to go in and you just want to work on athletes and all of a sudden no this is really cool to to do more subtle stuff um and and you know kind of get into the into the more uh uh gentler side or or well, i said it before the subtle the more subtle stuff yeah. um so we we talked uh last episode about scope of practice with athletic trainers and i just wanted so i just want to tie this in like athletic the athletic trainer said she could work uh with with kind of uh di diagnosing injuries and ooh, I'm not sure if that's what she, she can treat minor injuries for athletes. And if it's too serious, basically she has to pass it on to medical professional, right. um, that sort of thing. So with, with 
massage therapy, are, are you allowed to treat injuries as long as it just has to do with like soft tissue or? So that's where, that's where being a good massage therapist comes in is you got to know those limits. You can kind of, you, you can work as long as you're not invasive, as long as you're not doing high velocity thrusting, as long as you're not using, um, uh, uh, modalities that you're not licensed to use you can you can do your massage oh cool now now the 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 the, um the challenge is is knowing when massage isn't applicable dude what are those some of those contraindications so in other words you know if i got somebody that comes in and says uh yeah i was i was playing football and i didn't have my pads on and i got a knee right in the side of my thigh and I go in there and it's really swollen and it's really tender. I'm not going to run my elbow into his thigh because he's already got a bruise. He's had a huge contusion and you're risking, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, so yeah, no, you got to go, you got to go get somebody else to look at that to make sure you're going to be okay. Now, if I got a, a distance runner that it's got a, you know, he's got tight IT bands and it's causing knee pain, and and we know from from hit from from his history that he doesn't have a knee injury, and uh, and so on and so forth. That that I know that it's referred pain from the vastus lateralis. Well, then I'm I might go in there and and do some pretty heavy work with my forearm, to and then and then stretch to try to get this thing to 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 let go, loosen up, and let go. So it's just knowing when, when you should work and when you shouldn't, and when and who and when and who you should refer out from what you're doing. Cool. Do you know? Can I ask you a physiology question? Yeah. Do you know the physiology? What happens when you push on a muscle? Why does it relax? That's a really good question. Depends. Okay. Um, the one that I know the answer to for sure is if you've got if you've got a trigger point in a muscle which a trigger point is sort of a neuromuscular accident you've got a little tiny if if if, uh, if the folks are listening know what a motor end plate is uh, the a little place that the little nerve ending that fires a little tiny part of your muscle and sometimes they get going and they just forget to stop and so you've got this little tiny spasm in your muscle and it just keeps going and it starts building up your normal lactic acids and your cortisols and everything. And so, and it gets tight and it can cause, uh, you know, local tightness or it can cause referred pain in another part of your body. So then what you do is you, you need that spasm to stop. And if you've got it, you don't really know it's a spasm. It's just a sore spot. And so a massage therapist, their, their tools for that are, what's called ischemic compression and ischemic means without oxygen right and, whoa, um is that your ringtone no that's nancy's ringtone <laughs> um, <laughs> so ischemic compression which means you know without oxygen it's like when you put um pressure on a on a on a bleeding wound to stop the blood well, that's what you're doing. You, you, you kind of, the treatment, the trigger point, trigger point therapy 
is where you push on the trigger, you find the trigger point just by palpation, by feeling around for it with, with feedback from the, from the client. And then you kind of just push on it and you basically just starve it of oxygen and the muscle gives up because it can't fire because it's got no oxygen. You let, you, you let it relax and then you stretch it in hopes that it won't come back. Hmm. Um, as far as just a tight muscle, it's all about getting blood, getting oxygen into the muscle via blood flow, warming it up and letting it be a little bit more. It's like the, the dry sponge versus the wet sponge. So once you get fluid and, 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 and blood flow and oxygen into a muscle um, and even into joints, it, it just softens up. Hmm. Gotcha. Um, you know, does that have anything to do with Golgi tendon organs? We were talking about those in class the other day. Oh, Golgi tendon organs are cool. Because um, they sorry, detect tension in the muscle, right? They detect, yes. And it's because we were, we were learning about self-myofascial release in exercise physiology. Okay. And what we read was um, by, which is the foam roller sort of stuff. If, ah. if you put a sore muscle on a foam roller, you in, slowly increase the tension of the muscle, which stimulates the Golgi tendon organs and which triggers the muscle to relax. Is that your understanding? You're, you're a little bit beyond me. I studied Golgi tendon organs a long time ago <laughs> in college. They've probably changed. We probably, we've probably evolved since then. But yeah, that's, that, that sounds, trying to think about pulled muscles. And I'm thinking out loud here. If you stretch the muscle too, fast the golgi tendon organ senses that and inhibits that movement if it's going too fast is that right uh yeah so i think that's i think that's right because they protect from injury right they'll detect if the muscle has tension in it yeah it'll relax so it won't it won't pull then muscle spindle fibers detect length so, so if a muscle's really quickly lengthened, those will actually trigger the muscle to contract okay. and, and protect itself. Yeah. It goes, nope, not going to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know about, you more, you know more about it than I do. I glad we got that on recorded. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, let's, let's talk something that you know way more about than, than I do. Um, are the Olympics cool? The Olympics are cool. The Olympics are a little bit like Christmas. <laughs> um, please, please elaborate. Well, it's like as a kid, you have this 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 idea of what Christmas morning is going to be like, and you know, wake up and there's going to be presents and and there's going to be a, a, a Ferris wheel with Santa Claus waving at you and you know elves running around and the the winter wonderland landscape and and you wake up and it's cool because you know your living room's there and everybody's happy and you got 
um, uh, coffee cake and, and milk and cookies and everything else and cool presents and you open them up. And, and then after that's all done, it's just another day. It's a cool day, but it's just another day. And so the Olympics are like that. Well, yeah, you, you go there and here's all these absolutely fantastic athletes that you've ever heard about, you know, and, and, and you look at the, the world, you, you walk past the, the world famous uh, gymnasts and then you, you walk past the, the, the weightlifter that, that nobody knows except weightlifters and, and people that lift things and, and you get all excited and they're there. And then you get into uh, you get into the competition, and it's just the same competition as every place else. And it's exciting because yeah, there's people in the stands and all this stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, it's a it's a seven foot ring for me for the hammer throw. It's a seven foot ring, and you got to throw it into a thirty four point nine two degree sector, and you have to not step out of the ring, and you have to throw it farther than everybody else to win. So it's, it's really cool. And it's just the same thing all at the same time. Cool. That's, uh, we should probably take a time out. Do, do you want to describe what a hammer is and, sure. and just some, some of the basics of the technique? Um, because well, that was a very good description of the ring, but uh, <laughs> we, should, we should probably describe what, what we're talking about here. Okay. So the hammer is a 16 for, for men it's 16 pounds. Uh, for women, it's uh, 4K, which is 8.8 .8 pounds. Um, it's a ball with a swivel, a built-in swivel that's connected to a wire, and it's got a triangular handle that you hold with both hands, um, and it's just under four feet long. And you you stand you, you stand and you wind it around your head to get it going. And then you do some some fancy uh, physics, where you you make it go faster by by throwing, uh, kind of leaning your body around in the right positions at the right time, and you make it go. And then and then at that point it's locked in front of you, and then after three or four times around you kind of stop and lift it, and then it goes out into the sector, and and hopefully, it goes uh, farther than you've ever thrown it before, farthest anybody's ever thrown it thrown the, the the men's hammer is 284 feet and if you uh, the farthest an American's ever thrown it is just over 270 feet 271 two now somebody just broke the record and um, if you to, to, to quantify that in sort of real terms it's like from throwing from one goal line on a football field to the other 10 yard line with a 16 pound ball. So it's completely impossible. It's all done by smoke and mirrors. But for a it's always it's always amazed me that for a human to be able to throw 16 pounds almost a football field is pretty pretty cool. Yeah. And so and it, it's Rudy Winkler that yeah. has the American record now. Yeah. And and just just to be clear, the person who had the American record before then was you? There's a lot of people that had it before then, but I've I had it the most recently. Yeah, yeah. And so, how how far was your PR? My PR was 270 feet nine inches. 270 feet nine inches. Wow. Um, yeah, that's, that's that's pretty cool. Well, um, and I don't know quite where we could 
we could talk about how you, I mean, I'm probably going to edit this part out. Um, <laughs> it's going to be like but a I, I, I mean, the training system that at least I was, you know, that you and I were involved in, or at least I was involved in, we were has involved in the same system. Yeah, yeah, has has impacted my view of of development, human development, and processes of development. Like ever since, like I think about it every day when when I'm teaching. It's it's kind of the lens that I I look at the world through, and I I'm at a loss for even how to like ask the right question to to be like how cool was it <laughs> to to be in this in this program because you showed up you you were you were incredibly talented when you started throwing hammer this is after college you're already an all, all American but you never touched the thing until you were so you know. 20 years old. How much, how, how old? Well, I was a sophomore in college, so maybe I was 19. 19. And that's when you first taught, but you, you didn't start training seriously in the hammer until after college when you're 23. Yeah. Until I was 20, 23. Yeah. 24. Um, which sounds like, you know, I mean, people are getting drafted into the NBA at 19. And so 23 sounds like <laughs> a little late to be getting started on a, on a American record. Well, in world, you, you have a world record still, right? Record, yeah. And arguably, I, I might have the world record in the left-handed hammer. What the heck is it? Oh, 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 from a uh, left-handed thrower. Yeah, right. yeah. I don't know for sure, but I think so. Makes but sense. That, that, that's kind of pitiful to worry about that. I don't know. Isn't, isn't the difference between like backstroke and uh, uh, breaststroke? No, it's the difference between playing basketball on a city court versus playing basketball at some fancy arena. In other words, the the, the K, a lot, of, and the reason that I'm the, the really the reason that I became a hammer thrower. One of one of the big reasons is because I'm left-handed, and the discus love the discus. I'm really a discus thrower, throwing a different event, um, but it's it's aerodynamic, and so a lot of the places set up the set up the discus. For right-handed throwers which is the worst setup for a left-handed thrower so i was always you know starting 10 feet behind the line um and the hammers <laughs> it's so heavy it doesn't matter and so but they still don't know how to set the hammer had the hammer cage the thing that the surround that the netting that surrounds the thrower at, at you know at, at good facilities um it has gates in the front um, to to sort of to sort of steer where the throw can go, and it's different for left-handers and for right-handers. And in a lot of the places, you know, even at the at the biggest meets in the in the world, um, didn't really know how to set up a, a cage. So even then, I'm still fighting a little bit um, being left-handed. So it's a little bit different, um, but that, that's neither here nor there. It flies the same once, once everything's equal. Um, so what was the question? You know, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what the question was. Um. Okay. So let's talk some more. So, so um, 
you I think I think that you being in your profession, you you use the things that we learned from Stuart um, more every day. And some of the things that that Stuart talked about, which which are really cool to me, and then you can expound a little bit. Um, he always based movement on human development, on early child development. And so, you know, kids, when they first stand up, they, they don't cross coordinate. They move one side, then the other side. And he was always really uh, keen on getting us to use both sides of our body together. You know, the cross coordination where you're right, as your left foot's going forward, your right hand's going forward. And, and implemented a lot of that really basic movement into a very, very, very complicated, very counterintuitive movement in the hammer. And I think that that's why we won, is because a lot of, a lot of places, in fact, I don't know of any other place that does it quite like that, that, that generalizes the movement so much so anybody can understand it. And almost anybody, if they're paying attention, can feel this in your body and how it makes sense and how this is a better way to move. And um, yeah. It was, it was, yeah, it was learning how to move effectively first. Right. Before, and, and that was always paramount before strength, speed, agility. Yeah. That sort of stuff. It's not that strength, speed, agility weren't important or weren't things that we, we practiced on. It's just basic mobility was the... Um, it was more important to be an athlete than be a thrower. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, you know, a couple couple concepts that, you know, let's, let's let Fiona in. She just got here. So let's... Okay. Here we go. Fiona's here now. She'll pop in. So, like, for example, there, there's certain things um, that we did in training that I don't see right now in my classroom. And, I, and I'm not sure how to incorporate them necessarily, or I shouldn't say my classroom. Um, for example, repetition, like having things can, like we would do the same relative pattern for practice every day or every week. Um, and hammer, hammer is a complex movement, but I had the training, I had the weight training memorized after the first week yeah. for the year. I knew a year's worth of, of weight training. Um, you know, w within the first week, you'd Stuart sit down, kind of graph out the year. We had a simple weight training plan and we just did that. And we had amazing, amazing results with just consistency and repetition. Yeah. And it never changed. Never changed. The, the, the hammer technique changed every day, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> You know, he would he would come in and and he would play around with ideas and there's definitely creativity in, in the hammer technique, but whatever he could keep simple and keep consistent, he did. Right. I think. And I don't know, I I kind of struggle with how how much consistency and repetition to have in a classroom setting 
and how much novel new stuff to have in a classroom setting. And anyway, your thoughts. That's how I bail out of most statements and turn them into questions. I just say your thoughts. Um, <laughs> well, it, I'm completely, I've never thought of this before. Um, Lance had a thought, everybody. I had a thought. <laughs> were, 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 were you and I talking about... Uh, so, yeah, you and I were. When I said we were talking about um, the education system and wouldn't it be great if public education taught very basic skills? interpersonal communication. Um, I forget, I forget, do you remember? Yeah, and, and to be fair, we do teach very basic skills. I mean, that is, right. that is something we teach. I don't think it gets recognized necessarily. It's not emphasized. So my point is, yeah. if you look at, and, and you can maybe fill in after I say this. Sure. But um, if you look at what our training did, mm -hmm. as you say, we didn't really even think about lifting other than we just had to do it, right? It, it wasn't a huge challenge in our brain after, well, you learned it in a week, it took me about a year um, to, to kind of understand the nuances of why we were doing what we were doing and, and in what order and why we did them in that order and so on and so forth. So, so once we got that, then it was just set. And then we worked on more specific stuff and we changed more specific stuff like we would change bounding and we would change uh, uh, assistance throwing stuff and we would certainly change the technique all the time so if you if you take that into the classroom if you have the basic set so in in the in, in the for us the warm-up and the lifting was the was the real was the real basis of everything we did if we did the warm-up and the lifting correctly we could kind of do anything else we wanted without getting hurt okay so if we if if as an educator and i'm completely making it up because i'm not an educator if you set that stuff up you know how to act in class um how how to, to that's what we were thinking that's what we were talking about mostly is is logic logical thinking and and problem solving if you if you set that up from a very early age and are consistent with that, um, okay, here's a here's a really crazy, stupid tangent, right? Okay. So I'm I'm watching The Voice last night, right? Yeah, this is gonna and, be crazy and stupid. So go for it. That's yeah. So so um, oh, who's the who's the 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 new the the new star that's on it? Do you watch this? No, I I I don't. But oh, what's her name? Ariana Grande. Okay, is a new judge, and her guest, her guest coach is uh, Kristen Chenoweth, right? And apparently they were in some Broadway show together, and so they get all you know, they're talking in, in a mutual admiration society, and Ariana says something about something that Kristen's the old you know the the mature, no you know been around person. And apparently during this show, 
when they were making it, Kristen would ask the question, does it have value? Okay, I wanna, I wanna make this run in my song to make it sound cool. And, and, and Kristen would say, well, does it, have, does it add value? And so if we, if we assigned that question to education or, so I'm not gonna talk about the education because- I How about a, a system of development? How about- Let's talk about the throw. Let's talk okay. about our training. Yeah. So sometimes we would we would hit a point where I remember before you came along, we were doing side bends on specific day. Well, you never did side bends because at some point we got so strong at side bends that we were able to bend sideways during the throw, which is not good for the throw. So Stuart had to stop doing that because it ceased to add value to the throw. Okay. Squatting 900 pounds doesn't add any value to the throw. So we didn't do that. So in your classroom, if, if we, if you introduce something, if, 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 it's, if it's couched in this idea that, that uh, of, of logical thinking and problem solving, and, and maybe, maybe not even logical thinking, maybe creative thinking as well, but if it doesn't add value to those basics, then maybe we should think of, of something else to do. And I don't have any examples of that because I'm just making it up. Yeah, maybe I do, maybe I do a little better job of that. I, I don't know, I, I think there's lots of classes that are good at moving on. This concept builds on this concept, builds on this concept. I don't see something like, like what you said is once we learned the warm up and once we learned how to how to do the general conditioning like like weight training and and uh, you know, jumping stairs and to the general conditioning stuff. We could do pretty much whatever we wanted without fear of getting hurt. We were fit to train right. with that sort of stuff. But we never got rid of the warm up or the general conditioning. That stayed consistent throughout the whole training process. Whereas I feel like in my classes, once we learn a concept, we move on and we almost forget about that concept. You know, there's, it's not like we necessarily have like this, this warm up consistent thing that that we do and then just build a little bit every day on on a particular concept it seems like we're always just moving from one concept to the next to the next and that you know what this might be a good place to bring fiona in and see how she feels school works i fiona what do you think does it make sense what we're talking about or is this like a weird nuanced old guy hammer thrower gibberish <laughs> sorry i'm here <laughs> you couldn't hear um what was oh. the question no i'm, I'm <laughs> well, I here, sorry I, but how, how many times have you had the experience where you studied really hard for a test took the test did fine enough on it and then you basically forgot everything you just studied oh that happens to me like all the time like <laughs> Literally, like I'll study for something, and then like as soon as the unit's over, I'm like, okay, I don't need to go through my old thing of notes because I'm never gonna have to use them again, you know, unless it's for like the final. But I feel like 
during online school, like for example, is like our final was just based on one unit and not the whole thing. I know for medical terminology, it was everything that we learned, but for my other classes, I either didn't get a final or it was just on the last unit that we had learned. So it was pretty easy because it was still fresh in my brain. But if we had done like everything that we had learned, I don't think I would remember everything that we learned from the first month of school if we had to do everything just because we never had to revisit it. Yeah, and I and I don't know because I never felt like I never felt like there's anything in hammer training where once we learned this, we could kind of forget it and move on. And I don't know if just the education system, because we're dealing with a whole bunch of students with a whole bunch of diverse goals and diverse motivations, some things are gonna apply to somebody, and then the next thing's not gonna apply. Whereas Lance, you and I were were you know, trying to throw a 16 pound object as far as we could. And, you know, and, and so we were able to be, have very specific goals with very specific outcomes that we can, we could really tailor a a process of development. Um, So, so how does this land with you, Adam? So instead of talking about all of the, the training and setting aside the, the basic warmups and lifting, how about if we apply it to the technique Okay. So as an example, one of the first things we both learned was you stay down on your first turn. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't straighten up. At some point that kind of got to be automatic. It was still there, but now there's nuances to it. So you have to stay down, but you need more weight over your right leg or your left leg. You have to stay down, but you got to get the ball past you. And, and there, there are definitely progressions in, and maybe I saw it more because when I got here, Stuart was still just learning how to coach this thing to Americans. And so we did things um, early, like use, use your back hand. So my left hand, your right hand, use that's the predominant motor in the throw. Well, yeah. that changed as, as I developed then it became use both hands. That stuff is still there. You can't lose it, but you, and you use it every day, but there's other things added to it. And so it is, it was sort of a progression and sort of a layering of skills um, within the technique, not so much within the training. Yeah. If, if, you, if you separate the, you know, the, the, all of the parts of training, um, maybe it doesn't ring as true as if you just look at the technique. Yeah, even even with that, I wonder, like, are you so much of a better hammer thrower than I am? Because you did the basic fundamentals so much better than I did. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't a, a different technique or um, style or that sort of thing. Um, it wasn't the difference between using your backhand or your forehand. Just you, you did the basic. You stayed down on the throw. You were able to hold your center longer, better than than I could. You were stronger with better genetic. I mean, <laughs> better well, looking. Um, you know, that's just really debatable. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I've always said, and and absolutely, uh, you got to understand history. Uh, all y'all that are listening. Um, there's no, there's no malice at all. And, and we've, I've said this a million times to Adam, the only reason I threw farther is because I had better parents. Um, I did have better genetics. 
I'm, I'm bouncier than you are. You know, I've got more fast switch fiber than you. My, my limbs, my limb length is better suited to, to throwing this thing far than yours. And so um, was, I, was I any better at the basics? I don't think so. Certainly I wasn't any better at the training because you did the training with much more diligence than I did. And so I might, I might compare it to um, when I took algebra two, I, you know, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty smart, but in algebra, I had to do every single step, every single time. I couldn't jump. I couldn't jump a step. I couldn't mentally, I couldn't make that, make that leap. Okay. So maybe again, I'm thinking out loud, you had to do the warm up every single time, all of it, every time for everything to click in. Yes. By the end of my career, I jumped up and down a couple of times twisting and, and, and cracked my knuckles and I was ready to go because my body was able to jump the steps and get to that competition readiness faster and more efficiently than yours. Just like somebody that's really good at algebra can go, you know, take a, take a quadratic equation and, and see the end without working through all the steps. And I could never do that. Yeah, that's, a pro that's probably a really good description of exactly how, that, that is exactly how I thought of the warm-up. Is, yeah. is I, I had to work through all the steps to get to get to where I needed to be. Um, hey, let's let's change gears. That was cool. That was cool. I don't know. I, 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 I think I think we really solved something. Fiona, what do you think? Do you, do you think we solved the world's problems there? I think we got it figured out. Oh heck yeah! <laughs> there we go. Fiona thinks so. Oh Fiona, by the way, before we change gears. How did how did homecoming court turn out for you? Are you are you the top monarch? Um, so that's a funny question. Um, so today we're going to be announcing um all the court members at the football game, and that's what I was actually why I was late because I was uh, making sure I figured out like all of the scripts and stuff because I had to call the announcer and make sure like he knew what to say and everything. Um, but basically like we're all going to walk out on the field during halftime and like say like our little like uh, procession bio thing where it's like our favorite high school memory and who's walking with us and then at the very end we're gonna announce the monarchs. I did not make monarch but that is okay. Um, we'll announce those at the very end of the game um, but I'm super excited. It's halftime is gonna be really jam-packed because band's also doing their um, senior night and then dance team's going to be performing their palm routine so it's going to be very jam-packed but it'll be fun i'm uh, excited that's cool that's very cool yeah well you're 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 always a monarch in 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 our eyes so um congratulations thank you <laughs> yeah so speak i guess this this will segue into let's talk about opportunities can we can we talk about this for for a second and, and this is where i'm going is like I got incredibly, incredibly lucky to so to to have the athletic experience that I did. Um, I had wonderful coaches in high school. I walked on to University of Oregon. I couldn't even spell hammer, 
and just happened to run into you and Stuart uh, from walking onto the track team. And like, I was so naive. I thought, I literally just walked onto the track every day during the posted practice hours until I found a coach. I mean, I, I, and I just got incredibly lucky to get into this like elite training system. Um, it, was just, it was just dumb luck. I mean, I, 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 I think I put in some work, you know, to take advantage of that luck, but yeah. it was just dumb luck. Um, and you kind of had a similar, like you had more talent, but you kind of had a similar, like just dumb kind of luck getting into the hammer, didn't you? Yeah. 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 My, uh, uh, as a discus thrower, my head coach would talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime. And he just walked up to Stuart and said, Hey, I got this 200 foot left-handed discus thrower that needs to learn the hammer. Will you work with them? And at the same time, he was getting paid by the, the, uh, national governing body to coach the hammer. And so he kind of had to say, yeah. And, um, yeah. So I drove up on my, my Volkswagen Squareback and, uh, with the promise of being able to sleep on the couch in the weight room. And, and uh, as you say, you, just, you, you had done some work. I've, I had done some work and we were both willing to continue to do that work. And uh, I, I look at it, I really like the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that outlines this across, uh, I guess, cultures, no? populations um you know for instance did you know that that like a huge percentage i'm not going to say the number because i'll get it wrong um of canadian hockey players in the in professional hockey players were born in the first three months of the year because aquarian aquarians are better at hockey no what happens is um Canadian hockey, kids hockey starts at five years old. And so here's, and and they use the calendar year. So the first time a kid steps onto the ice, the the kids born in January are a full 20% older than the kids born in December. And so they get picked for the teams just, just because of maturity. Right. And, and so they get picked for the teams. Then the next year they get picked for a better team with better coaches, better ice time, better facilities, better uh, equipment, on and on and on. And so that's just dumb luck. That's just, you know, by virtue of being born on December 31st or January 1st. And there's a whole bunch of stuff like that. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, guy that invented Java, they're all born within months of each other in 1955. Their situation was different. Um, Bill Gates lived next door to a to a, um, a vice president of Hewlett Packard, who just brought computer parts. Sorry, Steve Jobs. Um, yeah. But but Bill Gates, I think, went to a, one of the few high schools that had a computer in the high school. Yes. Yeah. And and so they had had a chance to put in that work when it came time for this, this tech explosion and they were able to take advantage of it. Right. Um, so yes, it is dumb luck and it is hard work. So it's take advantage of opportunity. So, because I think about this, I think about this a lot. Forest Grove has 2000 kids in it. Uh-huh. I mean, 
that's got to be a big enough sample size. How? I mean, there's got to be at least two All-American hammer throwers walking around Forest Grove right now. Well, no, except for they have a teacher at the school that's really talented, really highly motivated to help these kids. Yeah, it's Ms. Hofstede. We've already covered that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so otherwise, no, that, that opportunity doesn't exist. Right? Without well, Stewart, well, I, would, I would have been a mediocre left-handed discus thrower, retired four years later with a, with a wrecked back, and gone on and I don't know what I would have done. Well, so, I mean, yeah, the, the, the odds that any of the, any Forest Grove students are gonna be all American hammer throwers are extremely low right now because none of them throw the hammer. <laughs> right. You know, if, if, we could, if we could have the facilities for having Forest Grove students throw the hammer, um, and, and go through this, uh, this process of development um, that, that you and I went through, I mean, there, there, we, would, we would be producing, there, there has to be at least Division I athletes yeah, absolutely. all over the place in Forest Grove because no one does the hammer. It's an opportunity that we could engineer at the school. And especially with the hammer, because the hammer, I mentioned it way earlier, is such a, 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 a counterintuitive event. You don't have to be a great athlete to be a hammer thrower. You yeah. have to have some, some determination and you have to be, you know, people ask me what's the greatest attribute that I have as a hammer thrower is stubbornness. I just had to learn the thing and I'm stuck around long enough to do it. Okay, so maybe I'm a little bit talented as an athlete. You know, I got some hops, or I used to. Um, I got long arms, small hands, so it's good, you know. Um, but most of it was just, I was willing to stay in it to learn it. Yeah. And that's, you know, and so, but they're all shapes and sizes of hammer throwers. Right, because it's such a technical event. Yeah. And just strength, speed, and agility doesn't mean you're going to throw it far. Right. Like timing and rhythm will get you to throw it way further than, right. than strength, speed, or, or height, or right. yeah, weight. You don't need to weigh something. You know, I think especially for, for girls, if there's girls that just, just enjoyed it, yeah. they, don't, they wouldn't have to be talented. They, after a couple of years of throwing in high school, they'd throw far enough just to get some, they'd get schools looking at them. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, my best hammer thrower, my best female hammer thrower ever was 5'8 and weighed 142 pounds, sopping wet. She was really fast. Well, sure. Yeah. But um, she won big. You know, the, the Olympic champion in 2000 or 2000, 2000, 2000 was um, Gypsy Moreno from Cuba. She was 5'8, 142 pounds. Wow. You know, well, the, 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 the first American record holder in the hammer was 6'3 and weighed about two, she was my size, 6'3, taller than me and weighed 260. She had really long arms. Yeah. Bloop, 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 wham! You know, she was strong. So just such this wide range, you know? 
Yeah, and it, it, it's even so counterintuitive. Like I think Stuart said that like uh, I picked up the technique uh, because I was so weak and unathletic <laughs> that I had no other choice. <laughs> But to, but to actually use the technique to to throw the hammer and yeah, the, uh, the king of left-handed compliments, Stuart. Tobin. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, and and you meant so we mentioned before that you're a fabricator. You build hammer cages. I do build hammer cages. And so so if enough people listen to this podcast and get excited about hammer throwing, you need uh, a hammer cage. Yeah, we we, we can put in a hammer cage at uh, Forest Grove, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's really all seriousness or all kidding aside very seriously. That to me is the biggest uh, roadblock in this whole thing. And it works this way. So you've got a system where throws the hammer until they're in college. And so by the time, by the time you're in college, you've got this kid that's near his, his mature strength and he doesn't know the technique so he grabs onto this thing and, and and yards it around for a point at the duel and he throws it way out of bounds and somebody's not paying attention because they've never seen the hammer before and they get hit and they get hurt bad because the hammer's dangerous so that's a lot of what that's what was going on when i was coming up it's getting mm -hmm. a lot better but so so contrast that to a place that has the hammer and, it's, and for, so there's a 10-year-old there's a, a that's weak as a kitten. He's throwing a, a, a 3K ball. And um, uh, he's throwing it 50 feet. Same thing happens, but he's in a cage. Right. So the same thing happens. Somebody walks across the sector and they get hit by a 3K ball. Well, they don't get, they're not in the hospital. They get you know, they're at the doctor's office, but they don't die. And so now the kid that throws it through it knows to watch out for the sector. The kid that walked across the sector knows to not walk across the sector. All of their friends, family, and anybody else that was near it knows about that ad finitum. So it's, and so everybody knows now you don't walk into the hammer sector. All the hammer throwers say know that you don't throw when somebody's walking in the hammer sector. You have a cage that protects everybody that's not in the sector, and it's a safe, suddenly it's a safe event. It's a it's a culture of competency and safety. Yes, around the event. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think that's true, and it's I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm biased. I think it's a I think it's a great event, and I just see there's so many opportunities. If you yeah. could be, uh, a high school could take advantage right. and get a whole bunch of kids some college scholarships, yeah. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's fun to learn and that sort of stuff. But uh, Lance, it looks like, looks like you, do you, you have an appointment coming up here? Yeah, I got a few minutes though. Okay. Fiona, what's, what, what's a good question that we should, we should ask Lance? I don't know. Um, <laughs> this is you caught me off guard. <laughs> you have one job in these interviews, Fiona, and that's the stage when I, when I can't pick your questions. <laughs> um, um, how about how is your day? <laughs> my day? That's a good one. 
Yeah. And, and here's how I'm going to answer that. Um, and I'm hopefully going to pull Adam out of the, the, uh, the interview uh, dark zone. So my day's great. I, we stayed the, the night at a bed and breakfast because yesterday was uh, my wife, Nancy, and my 32nd anniversary. And so um, it was great. We went up into the hills and hung out with some friends and had some tiramisu and uh, came down and we looked around at all the hammer cage and discus cage parts that I have to put on a trailer trying to figure out how to uh, allocate space in the trailer to be able to take five cages on the road. And, um, and then I got to talk about hammer throwing and remember some things that I'd forgotten about it. And now in a couple of minutes, I'm gonna uh, do a trade with an athletic trainer, one of the best athletic tra trainers at the U of O. And she stretches me and I massage her and uh, we always talk about stuff and she's really smart. So if I have questions, I get to ask her those questions. And, um, and then, uh, then we're, I don't know what, we're gonna eat some dinner and hang out and watch Ted Lasso. So my point in telling you that way is I think the important thing to do in life is to have balance. I always had something else going on as an athlete, um, whether it was uh, uh, taking care of the house or building, I've, I've built stuff forever, um, or I used to have a job working on cars when I was an athlete. So I had other interests. I didn't, I didn't get completely locked into one thing. Um, and it's the same thing now. I have, I have things that work both sides of my brain. I have things that work my body. I have things that, that help my spirit. And, um, and I think that's really important. And so, yeah, nobody asked me, but that's how I think you should live your life is, <laughs> is just find things that interest you. And, and sometimes you just get buried in them. Sometimes you get so focused that that's all you can think about for some amount of time. I used to say about throwing, if you're not dreaming about it, you're not really doing it. And that's, that, that's pretty, pretty heavy stuff. That, that's, that's pretty into it. Um, but I've heard of people, once they really get into like learning a foreign language, they know that they're there when they start dreaming in that language. Um, and so I think that's really important to have that kind of passion about something. And you can't let it rule your life. You still have to be the, 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 the um, I was thinking of some weird saying, but you still have to be in control of, of who you are and what you're doing and how you're moving through life. And so, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's good to be balanced. That's cool. That was beautiful. I love that. <laughs> words to live by by i think the greatest hammer thrower of all time oh shucks i mean we, we didn't even get into the uh the fair play aspect of things but oh boy well it's uh, kind of the same thing right it's kind of having a balance it's kind of not going uh 
having in, having something being so important that you're going to lose yourself or lose your soul doing it. Yeah. You just do it the best you can. That's that's pretty well said. That's I like it. Um, we'll just leave that cryptic ending, just 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 like that. Um, well, cool, Lance Deal. Thank you so much. This is a fun conversation. Adam, Chris, you're very welcome. Fiona, don't know your last name. It's it's, it's good to meet you. Good to hear you. And uh, good to uh, meet you fun, too. Have fun tonight, and good luck with the the, the team and the, the the homecoming court and all that. Thank all right. You. All right. I'm going to stop recording right now. Selfishly